0: Welcome to the Filling the Power podcast. My name is Greg Ashman. My guest for this episode is Calvin Robinson. Now, Calvin is a teacher, consultant for the UK's Department of Education, a podcaster, and a journalist. Bit of a presence on Twitter. You might might be following him already, perhaps even, if not, get on it. Um, So, welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much for
1: having me on, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, um, just to start us off, a little bit about you. Um, how did you get into teaching?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, it was a bit of a journey. So I was in the tech industry for a number of years after university. Um, we, I used to make uh, mobile apps and websites and, you know, run teams of developers, that kind of thing. Uh, I loved it. It was great, great fun, but we struggled to recruit. We always had trouble finding homegrown talent. Yeah, uh, I think we pretty much outsourced all of our development work either to Eastern Europe or to Asia, and we still do. You know, these companies that I used to work for, they still do. Gosh, for me, that, that's a big problem. You know, that's like, why can we not get the talent here? What's going on? Yeah, um, there's there's a gap there somewhere, and I looked into it, and I, I saw that you know it's it's not necessarily that they don't have the degrees because we had so many CVs that looked really good, uh, yeah. good computer science degrees, but they didn't have the knowledge. Um, no. So they had the paperwork, but no knowledge to back it up. Um, which led me to believe that there's a problem in education. And then I looked into it and figured <laughs> there's a big bloody problem in education. And I was either naive or arrogant enough to think that I could make a difference there. Um, so I did my teacher training, you know, one of those school direct on the job things where you, you dumped in the classroom, you get on with it and you get something, yeah. you get a bit of um, pedagogy on the, on the outside as well. Uh, and I loved it. I, 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 it was fulfilling. It was a big change in, in the way that I saw the world. It was more, you know fulfillment and getting that that spark of inspiration when yeah. you see a student uh, kind of get it and, and yeah you see you see them really engage with your lesson and your your content um, yeah, so I just fell in love with the, the profession, and I think it was a vocational move, it was definitely something that I needed to get into, but I didn't know and I'd, I'd been shifted i've been directed into it um, serendipitously yeah
0: wow yeah i it, i think it's it's like that I never wanted to be like from a kid's like as a kid I didn't want to be a teacher but for me I went I did uh, someone stood up in our lectures in like the third year or something and said does anyone want to come to Uganda and teach for a few months and I went and it wasn't there's a lot to say about that which I won't go into now and we ultimately I don't think we did a a, a lot of good Um, I think the whole yeah but I won't go into that now Uh, we didn't do bad things but like the idea that you can go Parachute into a place like Uganda, teach in a rural school, and then leave again, and and you've yeah. done a huge amount. I think is uh, on it's reflection a problem that missionaries have had for years, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much, yeah. And um, so, but what he did do is it made me fall in love with teaching, and I think for some people, it sounds like it's the same with you. It, you have to do it, and then when you do it, and you see the looks in kids' faces when they get something that they've never got before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like really motivating. Um, so I, I actually identify with that quite a lot. Now, one of the things I've heard you talk about, uh, which I think is very interesting, and I w- I'd like to share the story with us if, if, if you could, is about Brexit. So as I understand it, um, you, you were a supporter of Brexit at the time of the UK's referendum on whether to stay or leave, uh, stay in or leave the European Union in 2016. Um, I was actually there uh, on the day of the result. I was at the ed- um, Wellington day. Festival of Education oh, uh, on the okay. day of the result, and everyone had really long faces. I remember it very well. <laughs> yeah. But you you were a teacher teaching in a, not the school that you've been teaching in most recently, but um, another school. Um, mm. And uh, would you just tell us a little bit about what that was like and what happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was uh, part of Vote Leave. I was a campaign coordinator for my area. I put a lot of time and effort into the campaign. I really believed in it for a lot of uh, what I think are very sound reasons. Not for xenophobia or racism or any of those (laughs) things that people assume, and not because I'm bigoted or ignorant, but I had good reasons for believing in Brexit. So I fought hard for it. But I never thought in a million years that we'd win. I thought I was just sticking my head above the parapet uh, to kind of uh, be a bit of a voice for the everyman, because everyone I spoke to on the ground was kind of, You know, the normal people, at least that I spoke to, were kind of on my wavelength with this. And I I feel like we have a thing in this country that, you know, we have a silent majority in a lot of these issues. And it's important to speak uh, when when these issues are raised because we can get drowned out by the vocal minority. But anyway, I was teaching um, at the same time as this, and obviously, you know, i never bring my politics into school. My politics are, are, are known because I have a bit of a profile out there, but i never bring them into the classroom. That's not what I'm there for. I teach no. computer science, you know. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the election or the referendum. But um, that day, oh, June the 24th, uh, 2016, I, I've, I've never been so euphoric. <laughs> it was one of the best days of my life. I didn't expect to win it. I was just over the moon. I was on another planet, honestly. Um, just cloud nine, until I got to work. <laughs> uh, you know, I was expecting to lose. I was expecting to be um, kind of humble and say, you know what, we, we gave it a good fight, but you guys won. Fair enough, we're going to remain. Let's hope that we can reform it in some way or whatever. I was expecting to uh, concede defeat. And when we won, I assumed that the Remain side would concede. Uh, <laughs> yeah, again, naive or, or, or arrogant of me to assume that. But I got into school and I got pulled aside straight away as soon as I got through the door, so they were clearly waiting for me. And this was the, uh, the head teacher and the deputy head teacher. Uh, nice enough people, uh, but you know, they called me, said, Calvin, 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 you know, we, we know you're one of them. <laughs> but uh, whatever you do, don't mention Brexit. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I wasn't, again, I wasn't planning on doing that. It doesn't really have any relevance to what I do here, but um, I appreciate you talking to me personally. And I went to get on with my day job, but I went to get on with it and go to my classroom and start teaching. And as I'm walking to my class, even on the way to my class, I'm hearing teachers, uh, other teachers talking to pupils, you know, in the corridors with, with their long faces, like you say, just, oh, it's awful, isn't it? It's so dreadful. And I'm hearing other people saying, I know it's just like what's going on in the US with Donald Trump. Again, assuming that A, Brexit is bad and assuming that A, B, Donald Trump is bad, whether they're their personal opinions or not, I don't think they're relevant to the, the, that environment. I don't think they should be, pushing their personal political uh, views onto kids like that. But they were. And I saw this throughout the day. I heard announcements on the tannoy in the school saying that the chapel is now open if anyone wants to grieve about uh, the EU referendum results. Something. I'm thinking, what the hell? Honestly. Um, and later in the day, what really got my heckles up is an, an email from the executive head teacher. So this was a, a school that had multiple schools. We had an yeah. executive head who was above them all. Um, sending round the link to a petition, this is to all staff, a link to the petition for a second referendum. I honestly couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm gobsmacked at this point thinking they've quartered me, they've singled me out knowing that I'm the only person with the minority viewpoint in this, in this school um, saying that I cannot talk about my views. Yet everyone else is expressing theirs to the students, to the staff, wherever they can, wherever they get opportunity. And that is abhorrent in my view. That's completely wrong and it goes against teacher standards and everything that we should be believing in. And, it, you know, obviously I didn't stay at that school for much longer after that. But I think it's common in a lot of British state schools or English state schools that, you know, there's, I've written about it many times. That it is almost a left-wing indoctrination. There's a, a group thing. They don't think they're doing it. You know, they're not doing it on purpose, I don't think. I no. think they've all got good intentions. But they see their worldview as right and correct and, and the, the appropriate worldview. So they don't mind sharing it, yet they'll shut down opposing views. And that's, that's not balance, And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. No, and it,
0: it, it's all, like, you can un- understand the tabloids simplifying these issues, but I, I was quite frustrated. Like, I would, cards on the table, I didn't vote. I could have, as, a, as an expat, I could have voted mm. in that referendum, but I, I live in Australia now, my future's here, um, so I didn't really think it was my business to be making decisions on the behalf of other people, so I didn't vote. Sure. Um, and But I would have, if I had voted, I would have voted Remain, and I'd have re- voted Remain because um, I was concerned about the economic impact of leaving yeah. the European Union, and because I felt a certain solidarity with the other members of the European Union. I, I was no great lover of the European, like the idea of going to Strasbourg once—is it once a month or something—just to yeah. move the Parliament and all that sort of stuff. And it's not a hugely democratic institution, so it wasn't like a great love of the institution of the EU, but I I would have voted Remain. However, I'm from the Midlands, uh, the English Midlands, so I'm from Dudley and lots of my family, yeah. but there's probably the sort of people that you were talking to when you were campaigning. And I, I can't think of many who would have voted Remain. Um, and one of them, you know, a lot of them, would well, not one of them, quite a few of them would talk to me about, you know, when you're phoning home, um, the referendum in the 1970s, and the mm-hmm. fact that they 'd voted to i think what happened in the '70s is the government joined the European Economic Community as it was called then, and then had a referendum on whether to stay and A lot of these people that i' was speaking to had voted to stay in, in the EEC, um, but they believed it was strictly on the understanding that it was an economic community, and they felt very betrayed by the fact that it evolved into this kind of, kind of political um, yeah. community with political views and stuff. Um, and that was their main argument. And then to see um, the characterization all over the media that basically people who voted Leave were racist, um, I mean, for a study, it didn't feel like it was true, like xenophobic maybe, but usually racism like racism against the french and germans doesn't sort of compute it does like xenophobia maybe um, mm. and and to see that as the um, the explanation that that uh, it was like um, hillary clinton's bunch of deplorables you know that that's they, they're those people it's and an attempt i just to shut didn't down ring the argument isn't it yeah but it didn't ring true to me now yeah. as a school in my view can either completely stay away from all of that Or if they want to develop um, students and schools often run mock elections and things like that, if Mm -hmm. they want to develop their civic understanding, they need to present those arguments in a sophisticated way, like the the best versions of the arguments, not the tabloid, um, you know, finger pointing versions. But I didn't see... Um, much of that in the media, but I, I was the reason I, I was interested in your sco- story was I was wondering how that actually p- played out in schools, and obviously in your experience, it was they didn't play out very well.
1: No, I mean I would have expected to see well, some people believe this, but others believe that, or even at the worst, I believe this, but others believe that. But I didn't see any of that. All I saw was this is wrong, this is bad. You know, my my argument for Brexit. I'm, don't want to go into it too much because mm-hmm. it's obviously this is not about brexit but yeah. mine was a pro-immigration argument you know i yeah. i see as a as a school leader that we need more teachers from australia for example and it's difficult to get them over we've i've personally struggled to get, arrange the finances to get a, to keep a teacher in this country that was great and at their job and we wanted to keep them and it's unfair the system that we have it's kind of discriminatory. If you're from the EU, it's easy for you to get in, but if you're from Australia, Canada, New Zealand, India, wherever, it's more difficult. And I see we need more coders, we need more nurses, we need more teachers uh, from these places. So it just didn't pan out for me. So my argument was very pro-immigration, more immigration, but from different places. Uh, so that wasn't xenophobic or racist, but people didn't want to hear it. They wanted to just make assumptions uh, about what I stood for. And that, a lot of those assumptions came from teachers
0: yeah and i and this is what concerns me so um i've i've just uh, i've re- i've got a book that i've written which isn't out yet it, i don't know when it'll be out they say february i'm hoping it'll be out earlier um on it's basically it's supposed to be on explicit teaching and direct instruction but before mm-hmm. you can talk about how you, it's almost unavoidable to talk about what what is it we're going to explicitly teach and i was thinking about this um in terms of the curriculum And if you don't have have a well-defined curriculum, essentially the people that make the decisions about what the curriculum is are classroom teachers. And if classroom teachers um, don't know that they have um, a particular perspective and just think that that what they think is right and that Mm -hmm. it's not a perspective on the issue, then you could end up with teaching quite a distorted curriculum. I think that um the question of what should be in a curriculum is essentially a a political question so for me a political question is where you've got to weigh different things where you've got to you've got to you you can't answer it technically because you're not comparing apples and apples you're comparing apples and oranges so for instance you'll probably be aware of the sort of Hirsch argument for the curriculum that um you know in order to be able to read things like for instance, the New York Times is the example he uses, which is quite interesting in today's mm. context. To be able to read the New York Times, uh, the, the New York Times writers do not spell out every single thing in every article. They make assumptions about what the reader knows. Yeah. And so one of his arguments is, well, we need to teach students these things so that they can access sources of information like the New York Times. Because if you then do that, and you map that all through, and I'm paraphrasing horribly, you yeah. will end up with a very Eurocentric um you know white um, curriculum, so the other thing that you want to balance i don 't think i don 't think anyone is maybe some people are, but i don 't think anyone is claiming that the curriculum should be so solely that um, The other thing you want to balance is you know representation, making sure that there is a good balance of ideas from different parts of the world from different cultures, and that kids can see themselves in the curriculum and these are two competing things, but they are different things. And so resolving the tension between the two is essentially a political question. And ideally, the, the ideal curriculum would satisfy nobody because no one would feel like they'd got everything that they wanted. Right, that's but, a compromise, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's what a national curriculum should be, essentially. Um, but we, we tend to uh, hesitate at that. We don't want to specify books for the English curriculum. We don't want to, and, and we make it very vague And then the politicians just bang on about literacy and numeracy because that's vague and they don't have to make any difficult decisions. And then the people that end up making the decisions of exactly what to include on Brexit or American politics or whatever it is, are the individual classroom teachers. I don't
1: know. Do you have any thoughts on my little bit of a rant there? I agree. But I think it's good that we have autonomy there. It's good that we have that, but we need to... Use it responsibly. Uh, we need to make sure that when we are designing the curriculum for our school, that we are looking at it, like you say, politically, but also we're critiquing it, where we're challenging what we put forward. And it's a, it's a process, and we're not reacting to current events. That's what worries me at the moment. When I see, especially you know, this, these campaigns for more Black History, for example, that it's very much a reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on around the world. It's not actually no one's taken a look at what's being taught in history in schools and said, actually, this is too much this way or that way. They're just making assumptions and saying, we need to add this. We need to add that. We need to remove dead white men. And that is a very dangerous argument because it's, it's, it's not taking into consideration the balance that you talked about. Yeah.
0: And I think it, it, I think that idea of looking at what's already there is important. So I I was reading an article the other day uh, on science teaching Mm. and, um, uh, I actually blogged about it in the end because the the guy was saying, you know, he he set up a tension between facts, which are obviously disconnected and all this sort of stuff that, that people talk about when they talk about facts, and um, you know, knowing the processes of science and the the history of scientific ideas, and and essentially coming out in favour of the latter. And this is the way that people will, um, uh, end up Im- uh, immune to things like anti-vax. Um, rhetoric and all this sort of stuff. This was essentially the thesis of this argument, Mm. but he was writing in an Australian context. And if you look at the Australian science curriculum, two thirds of it already is what you could describe as the processes of science and the history of science. And only one third of it is content knowledge. Now when it's enacted in the school, obviously it might not be quite like that, but in the actual document it's two thirds. So if that's not enough, what it what balance do we want and I see that sometimes when people say well we need more this in the curriculum we need more that in the curriculum but actually if you look at the curriculum as it stands
1: there's quite a lot of that already yeah it's very broad it's very balanced and I think people talk anecdotally about what they remember from when they were at school rather than than what's actually being taught at the moment Uh, what I what I remember from my history lessons you know first of all I don't remember everything I was taught no what I remember Won't be what is being taught today. And I, I think we've, got, we've come a long way. So people need to, there needs to be some research done into this, basically. A, what's on the curriculum, and B, what's actually being taught, because what's being taught isn't always what's on the curriculum. One of the things I do think that the UK
0: does get right um, is the UK approach to uh, religious education. So in many places, um, we're, like in, in Australian schools, and I don't know, I, t- I teach in independent schools, so I might be slightly out of touch, but you either um, have like chaplains that teach um a particular perspective um mm-hmm. or, or you don't uh, and it's completely secular whereas um the uk system is that you learn about different religions so it, it doesn't mean that you have to become a muslim or you have to become a christian or you have to become a buddhist but you learn about what those major world religions what what adherents to those religions believe mm-hmm. and i think and i don't know I, um but I think that that aids the uh, tolerance because rather than coming up with myths and misconceptions about what different religions believe, you've got more of a a basis to, to understand even if you don't necessarily take on those beliefs.
1: A little bit more objective.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I mean,
1: is that what, is that your experience? Uh, I've worked in a lot of, um, church of england schools and i think you're right that that it is a bit more objective it is a bit more these are what these people believe this is what these people believe but i'd actually like to see a bit more the other way i'd like to see um teaching for example christianity from a christian point of view and then bringing in other religions for a worldview i'd like to see a bit more transparency there because i don't think you can kind of completely dissociate yourself from a subject like RE. um yeah well i I, had when i was at
0: school i I remember quite well that my re teacher was an atheist and so we always used to try and get her to talk about, you know you know the trick kids do where you don't want to do any work <laughs> so you try and get the teacher to talk about something that, that, that they might go off on one with um okay so um free school so um, you have associated you've worked at West London free School uh, yes. you are I believe a governor of um, Michaela community School in West London which is quite well known um, and uh, like in Australia, we, we, when I talk about free schools um, and maybe charter schools as well in, to people in Australia, the people will say to me, well, look, uh, Australian uh, government schools already have a lot of freedom to innovate and do their own thing. Uh, we even had an experiment in Western Australia where a number of schools became what they called independent public schools, which certainly had more freedom over hiring and firing and things like that. But nothing really changed, nothing really transformed. And actually those schools, I think, are going back into the, the system that they had previously. So what is it? Like, what's going on with um, free schools? In the, like, am I, am I under a misconception? Do, do they actually make a difference? Um, what's going on in terms of free schools in the UK? And, and what do you think it is that, that enables them to be a little bit different and a little bit more innovative?
1: So I personally like the freedom. So I like that you can have a group of parents, or teachers, or both, uh, that come together with a vision, a clear vision from the get-go and say, this is the kind of school that we think would work well in this environment. And we've got a lot of uh, areas that have been highlighted from the government that say, you know, there's an area of disadvantage here that's in desperate need of a good uh, secondary or primary school, uh, and then people can come together and create one, they can build one from scratch. And I think that's fantastic, because if you look at, well, take the two examples you used, West London Free School, uh, set up by Toby Young, wanting to give kids, you know, a grammar ethos or a private school education, but in the state sector. Like, obviously, he was a parent himself who wanted his kids to be able to get uh, the top quality education, but in a, in a state environment, and I think that's, that's admirable. Likewise, with Michaela, I think Catherine Berbelsing, in all her years of education, came up with an idea of what would work, you know, based on Doug Lemmoff's uh, Teach Like a Champion and based on Kip uh, charter schools, and kind of took that and said you know what I'm not going to do all this progressive nonsense that everyone else is doing I'm going to do it what I see as to be the right way I'm going to prove everyone wrong and just go for it run with it and as long as you know you get the backing of, of fellow teachers and parents and get a group together that's willing to go with you on this journey you can, you can do it uh, I think that's amazing we, we need more parental choice we need the ability to set up more schools where they're needed uh, with strong ethoses and strong visions because uh, so many of our state schools are kind of a lot of them are coasting, but a lot of them are nose diving. You know, we've got a lot of inadequate schools with really poor behavior, uh, really poor curriculums as well. Um, so we do need to turn those around. But the idea of adding more is always a good thing, in my opinion. And, and so freeze frees them up. Go on i'm just i'm just saying so obviously free schools are academies so it frees them up as well because they're not beholden to the local authorities and the local authorities used to have the purse strings but they also have a lot of bureaucracy and they have their own ideologies um even just you know there's some stories about even getting michaela set up and getting some premises from the local authority was difficult they've kind of for a long time a lot of particularly left leaning um, authorities want to see education done in a certain way. And it's not evidence-based. It's not, uh, it's not informed by research. It is just their personal political ideology that they want to push and that's dangerous. So stepping away from the LAs uh, and giving the schools the autonomy, giving the the subject matter experts and the teachers the autonomy to get on with it is incredibly powerful.
0: Is it, is it dependent on having um, like some, like I'm wondering what the necessary conditions are because um, when i when i came uh, to australia my, my intention was to work in a government school um and um i didn't uh, largely because of uh, the way you get to work in in schools in australia so I, I came here with my family um and i had i needed to get a job and i sent my cv to various schools in uh ballarat and geelong which is where where i was based and um, and i got lots of interest from independent schools and i most Um, government schools just didn't respond. And then uh, a couple did. Um, One said they didn't have anything. And the other said that they'd be advertising in a few months time and I'd be a strong candidate. But at this point I'd got three or four job offers from independent schools. I had a family to look after. So that's where I went and I haven't looked back because I'm very happy at the school that I'm in. It's given me this, um, this uh, interest in research that I didn't have before. Maybe we'll get to talk about that later, but, um, yeah I wonder like so i don't feel I'm, I'm not sure that schools are that free to move and um and jump on um new ideas and things in the way that the schools in, in the u k are but this is what people tell me. People say, well, schools in Australia already have a lot of freedom, and we're not having the innovation is it do you think there are necessary conditions like policy wise or or as what's happened in the u k really just hang on having people around like Catherine Burble Singh and people like that who are just big personalities and can make stuff happen.
1: I mean, there is, there is policy involved. We, the whole free school movement is hanging on a thread. If we ever get a Labour government, I think it will be gone um, because, because of the things I said about, you know, freedom and autonomy. And they, they like to have a stronghold on, on how schools are run. Uh, so there is that aspect of it. But yeah, it does rely on on strong characters and strong leadership. But don't schools in general, you know? any Every good school that I've worked in or worked with has had really strong leadership from the top down. I don't think I've ever seen a good school with poor leadership. So you need that person with the strong vision that can carry everyone else on board. And what are these schools like? Like, to, just to,
0: you know, like, um, explaining to someone who hasn't visited um, West London Free School or, or Michaela, what would they mm. see that wouldn't, that would be so different or atypical compared to your, your typical uh, say secondary school in 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 London or Britain
1: yeah I, well, I mean I can remember the first time I visited Michaela when I was a recently qualified teacher and it just blew my mind it it took me a few visits to actually really understand what they were doing there because it was so foreign to everything else that I'd seen up until then especially during my training um, so you know kids will walk around the corridors in silence unless they're reciting poetry or something with a teacher that's there um, they will stand up when a teacher enters the room or, you know, during assembly when the headmistress walks in, they'll stand up uh, out of respect. Um, they're always silent in class. They're tracking the teacher. They're watching what the teacher's doing. They're not fiddling around or messing around. They're up straight with good posture. Uniforms are on point. Um, at the start of lessons was one of the things that really got my attention. It, it was 30 seconds, probably less than 30 seconds, between entering the room, sitting down, pencils out, books out, eyes forward. That was bonkers to me you know the amount of times we've spent a good five minutes just waiting for everyone to dribble in and sit down and get ready uh, just the amount of learning that is missed out on but not in schools like like Michaela and you know even you know singing the national anthem together um just a sense of national pride uh, not I'm not talking about jingoism here I'm talking about a sense of unity and I've heard Catherine talk about this many times saying you know what it doesn't matter where your family's from uh, it doesn't matter what your religion is you're all here in this school you're part of this school community you're part of this British community and we're all in this together and I think that's amazing and I've heard you know Barry Smith who was also a Michaela he's now uh, he also uh, he worked at Great, Yarth, Great Yarmouth Academy uh, helps them get up to scratch uh, also says things like this and uh, I think it's the whole it is bringing people together is that sense of unity and kind of telling people how fortunate they are to be a member of this school and how they're going to exceed and setting these high expectations and high standards because we we live in a culture of low standards and low expectations and especially in our inner city schools you know when I was training I, oh, the amount of excuses I'd hear oh but he's from a you know disadvantaged background he, he shouldn't be expected to do his homework or give him a break or let her off with that and it's just it's not helping them, they, 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 these people think it's a kindness, but it's, it's holding them back. And kids thrive when we set high expectations for them and they'll, they'll rise to meet them. And that's, you know, Michaela was the first school that really opened my eyes to that. I think West London Free School is much more in the middle of, of, of middle ground, you know, this is a school that's been on a longer journey. Um, and, and they're kind of adapting some of these but not all of these methods so for example you know they've recently just introduced silence in corridors, which i think is fantastic because it cuts down on bullying between lessons and it actually shortens the time that it takes to get from one lesson to another uh, and kids feel safer and more confident in that kind of environment but you know there are a lot of schools like that that are looking at the michaelas the bedford free schools the dixon's trinities um and kind of taking on board aspects and elements of it and are the kids all like miserable and
0: frightened all the time in these authoritarian (laughs) draconian regimes
1: the kids are the happiest kids I've seen especially at Michaela you know they love being there and they really do have a sense of pride in their school um you know just they will talk to you about how happy they are to be a member of Michaela and that is it sounds doff but that's quite rare for kids that love school that much that they're, they're proud to tell you about it and I've seen them you know on school trips where they're looking for an opportunity to give up their seat to a member of the public. They're, they're proud to be part of a community, the wider community, and they're going to be good uh, members of society. And that's another element of schooling that I think we miss out on quite often. You know, we push for academic excellence, which is very important, but we yeah. kind of forget character quite often. And these schools are focusing on character too. Do you think character, I mean, characters,
0: like I, I can picture how to teach a kid how to, like, do um, long multiplication or something. Yeah. But it's, it seems much more ephemeral um, well, how it's... you would teach them to have have a particular character. Well, it, it, what is teachable about that? And, and in your opinion, how do you go about teaching it?
1: Well, it's one of these things that it's very difficult to prescribe or write it down, but... Yeah. you see it <laughs> we all know good character, you know good manners having kids open doors when they see someone else walking towards the door uh, picking up a piece of litter if they see it on the ground whether it's theirs or not you know so many schools I would say pick that up please and I'll get a lot of back chat in, in some schools like Michaela and Bedford Free School I wouldn't have to say it because the kids would see it and they pick it up um, just like I said about giving up seats so and looking for opportunities to be a good person uh, to be kind and respectful uh i was i'm a christian so i would say looking for opportunities to be a good christian live a good christian lifestyle and shine as a light as an example
0: Hmm. so uh is this to do because michaela's got the famous pyramid haven't they where i think it's like initially you do you you do you do the right thing because you don't want to get um a punishment and then you do the right thing because you want to get um, recognized or praised by you? I'm paraphrasing this I might have this all wrong. but then right at the top level is I do the right thing because it is who I am and so the sure. idea is that the students move up through that pyramid is it that sort of thing?
1: I think that's spot on that really encompasses it very well And that's probably why they have such emphasis on that because we are taking kids from you know lots and lots of different backgrounds with lots of different uh, perspectives on life and we're, we're getting them all out at the other end the same as in as in great members of society with great grades uh and really nice people to be around
0: hmm so um your subject area i, d- I wanted to talk a little bit about that and explore that just a little so you teach computing now um that's different to, to, as i understand when i when i was in the uk um i think it, people had been at the shift had maybe just started so i left in 2010 but yeah. basically, most of my teaching career in the UK, uh, you had IT. And IT was about basically using various computer packages. And it always seemed a little bit pointless because the sort of stuff that, that the kids learned was out of date by the time they'd learned how to use it. I mean, I remember I, I often tell the story when I was at school because I'm ancient. We had the BBC Micros. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah. And I learned how to use a word processor called um, View on BBC micro and the commands that you had to do to save the document and the commands you had to do to uh, justify text and all this. And we were taught this all very seriously, very straight face, but of course it's completely useless because the, 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 the technology changed so rapidly, but then it shifted from it to computing. So could you talk a little about that shift, what that looks like and, and what the difference is?
1: Yeah, I think you've, you've- Kind of encompassed IT very well. It was very much using computers, using software. It was rubbish. It was pointless. You know, I remember using those BBCs as well. We had um, one on a trolley. I'm also from the Midlands. Maybe it was a Midlands thing. I don't know. We had a (laughs) computer on a trolley. It was more like a TV with a keyboard. Yeah. And uh, this, I'm talking about in primary school here, and they'd wheel it around from classroom to classroom. We'd have a go on it. I think we learned basic BBC Basic, maybe. Uh, But yeah, and then throughout middle school, we did Word and Excel, and you know, Microsoft products. And it was a terrible subject. Michael Gove's initiatives in 2014 brought in computer science, which is more the science behind computing. So it's, a lot of people think it's programming. It's not just programming. Programming is a a core part of it. But it's the theory, it's the history of computing and what makes them work and how to make them work. So how to develop your own software, what's entailed in that. Um, I think it's very forward thinking. I'm not convinced that it's working at a school level I think it's probably more of an academic subject if I'm honest with you um but I'm part of the DFE's movement to kind of make sure that all schools in the country have a high quality of uh, computer science education and you know it's a str- it is a struggle uh, trying to get good quality computer science at GCSE in every secondary school so I, I work with schools in London for example and yeah you know, there's so many challenges so some schools don't even think it's a serious subject so they'll still see it as IT Um, so they don't know what computer science is some school leaders uh, really think it's key but they can't find the staff to teach it because if you've got skills in computer science why do you become a teacher you know you go work for goldman sachs and earn three four times the salary Uh, so there's so many hurdles there but we're, we're working
0: on it so the dfe is the department for education um so so they're trying to um so i would imagine the main problem is the recruitment problem
1: is that is that right or are the yeah, it's massive. I think mean, one of the ways of working around it is to kind of encourage other teachers to take up computer science. So if you're maybe looking to broaden your horizons, you want to strengthen your CV, we'll train you up in computer science if you're a teacher in math or science or something else, uh, give you something else, give you you know an, an additional thing. And that's a way around finding computer science because we just can't find computer science teachers. They just don't exist. Do you think it's better to not, if you can't find...
0: Uh, the right people to teach it is it better to just not teach it at all or or can
1: well that 's the that 's the dilemma isn 't it i don't, i'm not i 'm not sure yet <laughs> i 'm trying to be positive and optimistic and think yes we can' Because either you have someone with computer science knowledge that doesn 't know how to teach or you have a teacher that knows how to teach but doesn 't know computer science so which one's which one's best uh, or should we just drop the subject entirely i think it 's too much too important to drop it entirely. We do need to have some computing on the curriculum. Whether it's a GCSE or not, I don't know. I think A level and degree level are probably better for this subject.
0: And I would say in microcosm, that's probably the, like all, all, all countries around the world, rightly or wrongly, we might debate whether this is actually uh, the right thing to do or not actually, because it, it, you could discuss that. But rightly or wrongly, um, governments around the world want to push Students into STEM subjects science technology, engineering, maths, um, I think they see it in very uh, utilitarian terms, so politicians generally from my perspective see uh, apart from a few um, notable exceptions generally see um, schools as as um, machines for making uh, workers who can work in Industry and then they say oh, what are the industries that we need people to work in or science and technology? So we need to push STEM in schools and then things like the arts and uh, Humanities get marginalized to an extent um, but it, it, The critical problem even if you want to follow that agenda if you even agree that that's the right thing to do to push 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 STEM is the recruitment of teachers issue um, I wonder if do, do you have any thoughts on, on the push for STEM, whether it's, whether it's the right thing to do and, 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 and what the issues are?
1: Yeah, I think it's part of this. You, you, again, you're spot on. It's this utilitarian attitude that we're teaching kids for the jobs of the future that we don't yeah. know exist yet. It's all that nonsense. It's, no, we're not. Education is an end in and of itself, and we're imparting knowledge. Uh, we're not teaching kids to do jobs and I think that battle needs to be won first you know we've we've got a few good people we've got Nick Gibb, who's the school minister who gets this, but very few do uh, very few politicians do um, on the recruitment side i don't know. I was part of the um, get into teaching recruitment drive, trying to encourage more people into the into this sector. but I think there has to be a way of looking at professionals, looking at people with strong subject knowledge, and enticing them into the the more fulfilling side of education and getting them involved that way but whether we're focusing on stem or not I'd, i think it's a fluffy term that means different things to different people sometimes i see it's a steam sometimes as stem you know with arts included uh, the subjects do have links but then they don't and like you say the arts get left behind i think we, what we need to do is look at what works well so schools that have a strong emphasis on academic curriculum during the day and then they've got really good extracurricular activities such as sports and the arts. Those kids are well-rounded and do really well. So more schools need to be copying that model rather than looking at, um, these silly fluffy STEM things and future future jobs and whatnot.
0: Yeah. And I think my, my perspective is, although I like, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I did physics at university and, um, I'm, I now teach science and maths. Um, so I obviously value the sciences. I think they're really important. Um, but I don't think they're all that there is. Um, And a large proportion of even what I do is, is like writing persuasively writing emails or, you know, communicating with people, giving presentations and all of that is, is the ability to write well Mm -hmm. off which, um, sorry, on which sits lots of things like knowledge of history, knowledge of the arts, like all of these things like writing is not this discrete skill that, some people see it to be, it's, it, it has a, um, a set of skills, but it also draws on all these other areas of the academic curriculum. And I think we lose sight of that at our peril, really, because it, ultimately a lot of people, there's not going to be that many people um, who run science experiments for a living or who design uh, technical products for a living, but there's going to be an awful lot of people who need to use these more arts-based skills and if we marginalize those um we could actually we could actually do the reverse of what the politicians want and end up making ourselves less competitive
1: well i think it comes back down to what you said earlier about designing the curriculum and i know christian council is very good on this in that we need elements of history and re to talk about each other and we we can't we can't discuss certain key events without background knowledge of other events and other subjects they all link together in that way so we need to build a curriculum in a structure that makes sense so that kids have a, a good foundation to know what they're talking about and in terms of the knowledge argument the the uh, the the one you get
0: still very popular in australia is um you know there's knowledge is out of date um very quickly we'll most of the knowledge that we'll need in 10 years time no one has invented yet and all this sort of stuff so um. we have to teach um, research skills, or teamwork, or collaboration. Um, uh, what are your What are your thoughts on that sort of thing?
1: Is that an actual debate that's going on?
0: It's still It's still
1: current in Australia, yeah. So, I mean, will uh, ten sixty six be out of date eventually, or something? I don't. You know, <laughs> knowledge is key. You know, without knowledge, you can't access anything else. You need to have the knowledge before you can build the skills. And I'm not saying skills aren't important, but the emphasis on things like group work and all of that, it's just fluffy nonsense. You don't get anything, you can't teach it explicitly either. We need to look at, like you said, our our writing skills, but you know, our our maths, our English, our sciences, and as well as having a strong emphasis on the arts as extracurricular activities is very important. I don't don't get this whole knowledge versus skills thing. I think they go hand in hand, but you definitely need the knowledge in order to get to the skills. Excellent. Um...
0: So one of the things that, um, and I I said earlier that we might get to this, one of the things that um, has changed my career, I was in the UK. I was heading, I was the deputy head of a uh, high school in West London and I was heading towards maybe a headship probably at some point. And then we moved to Australia and um, uh, I got the job where I am and I discovered education research. And um, I got really, I, I read John Hattie's, visible learning which I now I would question some of the analyses in that but that but it got me onto papers um by Kirschner, Sweller, clark it got me into a lot more reading around education research and one of my roles where I currently am is uh, head of research so that's not because our school does a lot of research it's it's more that we do a little bit but it's more about um being a kind of librarian and saying the, these are the things that we ought to be paying attention to; these these are articles that should inform our practice, and, and curating that. Um, but it feels a bit, it feels a little bit unusual here. Um, I'm, I'm, there, there are a few scattered connections around Australia with people trying to do similar things, but yet there's an awful lot more of schools talking about you know mindfulness or whatever the this year's initiative kind of is. Um, But when I go on UK edgy Twitter and I have a look, it seems like the discussion there is a bit more, it's volatile and it's um, a lot more argumentative. And I think that that's probably a British characteristic, I think, um, when you look at the different variations on edgy Twitter around the world. But it does seem to be more grounded in research. Can I infer from that? Do you think I'm right to infer from that, that the discussion in education more generally in the UK now is more grounded in research? Because it certainly wasn't when I left.
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I don't take part in EduTwitter. I, I make <laughs> sure I stay well away from that. I follow only a handful of educationalists because I, I just can't. It's such a toxic environment. It really is. Uh, I could go into a whole a podcast about edu EduTwitter. <laughs> um, but on the research front, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think... We've got research ed, curriculum ed, all of these things opening up. And we've got a lot more teachers looking to base their practice on evidence, on research. And and I think that's part of the trad movement, actually. It's part of that movement of going back to basics and get stepping away from the latest fads and the progressive uh, take on whatever we should be looking at. And, yeah, having evidence-informed practice makes a big difference. And we're seeing results as a a result of that. Um, I tend to try and be a part of the conversation, through my writing. So I'll put an article yeah. out there and I'll look at the comments. I'll, I'll respond to other articles, but yes, the Twitter Twitterverse is, is, a, is a very interesting place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in the in the schools you've worked in. So the, the questions like people tell me, Oh yes, Twitter is very different to what's actually happening in schools. In the schools that you've worked in are, are people discussing research articles and, and things right. like that and saying, oh, oh, actually we, we should introduce more distributed practice or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because in some schools they're not. Uh, in some schools I've, I've tried to share literature and people have been, you know, a bit apathetic about it, which has been a bit of a downer. Um, but when I went to West London Free School, that really opened my eyes again, because then there were so many people that were part of the conversation. You know, so many um, really fantastic teachers there that were leading in their field and kind of, you know, not just going to history events but launching history events and getting other people involved and and doing research together and passing that on to their colleagues so it is it is happening in some schools and it's very very lovely to see and it sounds from your perspective that it's the again the
0: engine room for that kind of innovation is is the free schools
1: yeah no i think it is it's the same kind of people that are interested in that they get involved in it there's there's some crossover there i think with people that are, um they have a certain idea of how schools could be or should be and want to, first of all, look into it, research it, make sure they're right, and then implement it rather than just going with the status quo and uh, following the latest trends. So um, finally, um, I'd like to ask you a little
0: bit about what you're up to now. Um, I understand you, you're you involved in a, a campaign called Don't Divide Us. W- would you like to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I love this, this campaign. The idea is that, you know, after... the, the horrendous awful events around George Floyd's death Uh, this Black Lives Matter movement took hold of the globe not just not just the nation and everyone's talking about it but it started an important conversation but again people are very reactionary and people want to be seen to be doing something and I've seen in schools there's a lot of pressure so head teachers in particular are getting pressure from unions from activist teachers from parents and from students sometimes to do something about this uh, to address it in some way, and extremists are taking advantage. You know, we've we've seen a lot of um, critical race theory. This whole idea that that, that uh, white superiority is a thing, and and that uh, everyone has a unconscious bias, and white people are racist by default, they're oppressors, and black people are the victims by default, they're the oppressed. And it's not a it's not a theory that I subscribe to. I think it's one that's been quite openly debunked. I think it's detrimental to the well being of our young people to give them that well that view unchallenged um and don't divide us as saying look let's not look at these divisive theories or if we do let's challenge them and, and really look into them deeply before we teach them but it's also about giving uh, alternative perspectives so um, some schools have been getting resources from the chartered college of teaching or from tes which are very i would say left-leaning uh, teaching a, a certain perspective and we're trying to provide more of a balance and keep people united, you know? Like I said earlier about Britishness at Michaela, this is not just a Michaela thing. This, we can all celebrate our similarities rather than focusing on our differences. I think we live in one of the best places to live in the world, in one of the best times to be alive. Uh, there's so much to be thankful for. And the more that we focus on the things that divide us, the more you know, it's detrimental it will be to our young people. We need to strengthen our unity, not, uh, not split it apart. I saw, um... I was I
0: admit I was quite shocked and I think this was at the height of the whole um the process the global protests over the death of George Floyd. So in, in a sense you can understand if people had kind of lost their bearings slightly but I did see like um photos of um senior leadership teams um at their school taking a knee um, and I saw that on Twitter and I thought I wonder yeah it, it, it might be the right thing to do. I don't, I, I don't know. But It's not, about, it's not to pronounce on that. But when you say it, people felt the need to be seen to be doing something, but then that um, in terms of our obligations and our responsibility to delivering a broad and balanced curriculum
1: with multiple perspectives, there's a, there is definitely a tension there. Yeah, it comes back to the start of our conversation that the curriculum should be designed with subject matter experts. It should be a democratic process that is challengeable and it shouldn't just be a reaction to current events. It shouldn't be implemented on a whim uh, to look good because once it's implemented, it's there and that's when you get into tricky situations.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you uh, so much, Calvin, for your time. I've really appreciated that. Um, I think um, our um, our listeners will appreciate that too. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Anytime.
1: Thanks for having me.